0: Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the history of eye care today. I am really excited to be joined by one of my mentors, Dr. Ted Bueno, who currently serves as the James and Shirley Q's professor of ophthalmology at Emory Eye Center in Atlanta, Georgia. He's the director of Oculoplastics Orbital and Cosmetic Surgery at Emory Eye Center and has been there since 1985. He is well known for his work in botulinum toxin, as well as porous polyethylene for orbital implants. He has published more than 80 articles in medical journals and is well known for his phenomenal lectures and book chapters. He's our first oculoplastic surgeon to join us on the podcast, and I'm thrilled to have him here today. Well, Ted, thank you so much. It's an absolute honor to have you here today. You've been a mentor of mine back when I was at Emory, and I'm I'm thrilled to have you here talking about your history and your involvement with oculoplastic surgery. So why don't you tell us about how you got started in ophthalmology?
2: Well, like a lot of other things, it involves uh, personal issues. When I was a senior in college, my mother had a vitreous hemorrhage. And this was 1973. And there was not much around for treating things like that. And she ended up having to go down to Bascom palmer as... A patient and got a vitrectomy very early on when people were just starting to do vitrectomies. And as I was entering medical school, I started reading about this and I thought, my gosh, this is just one of the most fascinating surgeries. And Look at what they're doing now with the eye. I'd always been interested in it, uh, but this made my mind up. I had to go and become an ophthalmologist and I had to go and become a retina specialist without a doubt. So I went to medical school and into residency with the thoughts of becoming a retina specialist. And after getting into residency uh, at the Medical College of Wisconsin and having to train under people like Tom Auberg, Travis Meredith, Truxler Topping, having people like George Williams in your residency class. All of these these are people who went on to become chairs in ophthalmology or heads of major vitreo-retinal organizations. And I said, there's no way I'm the smart of these people. I'm going to have to find something to do with my life that someone with only moderate intelligence can do for a living. There's no way that I'm as smart as all these people that Tom Auburg had brought in. Um, Tom was the first fellow at Bascom palmer in vitreoretinal retinal surgery. So he was at the forefront of vitreoretinal retinal surgery from day one. He was Mockner's, Robert Mockner's very first fellow. And when he finished his fellowship in Miami, he took a professorship at Medical College of Wisconsin. So for the longest time, there were only three places in the world you could get a mechanized vitrectomy. That was Baskin Palmer, Medical College of Wisconsin, and Duke, where Montgomery was after he left Baskin Palmer. Oh. So at that point, going to Milwaukee was like a dream come true because I was going to train under Tom Abbott and I was going to become a vitriol retinal specialist. <laughs> but yeah. things changed. So, and I can remember sitting there at the end of my second year of residency, I'd actually filled out paper applications, which of course you had to do then, paper applications for your retinal fellowships on one hand and oculoplastics fellowships on the other hand. I actually had a stack of these things. It was that close. And I... Decided it was time to go home. It was about 10 o'clock at night. I walked out to the mailbox and I sat there for several minutes trying to decide which ones to put into the mailbox. It actually was that close. And I put the oculoplastics ones in instead.
1: And the rest was history. Tell us about that history. So from there, you left Medical College of Wisconsin and... Went to Bascom Palmer for my fellowship. Mm
2: -hmm. And again, I have to go back and credit... Tom Auburg to a great degree. At that time, there was only, I think, 11 or 12 oculoplastics fellowships to be had in the entire country. There's something like 54, 55 right now. There was only 12 a year at that wow. time. And since Tom Auburg had such a wonderful relationship with the people at Baston Palmer, he persuaded them to take me as the fellow for that year. So in the summer of 1982, went down to Baskin-Palmer to become Dick Tenzel's oculoplastics fellow. And, boy, there's... I
1: recognize a, that name.
2: There's another very interesting <laughs> individual, to say the least. Those of us that had the privilege of training under Dick Tenzel knew him to be a, let's be polite and say, demanding taskmaster. <laughs> the... Man was extremely strict, very regimented. He was kind of cut from the old general surgery model. He was not beyond throwing things at people in the operating mean, room. I mean, a lot of his fellows used to joke that to become a good Dick Tensel fellow, you had to be able to duck when something was thrown your way. And I went through an entire year of fellowship, fellowships were just one year then, without having anything thrown at me, which I was told was a great success by the nurses and the operating room. He was an incredible person to train under, probably the best surgeon I've ever seen in my life. Uh, The man had incredible hands, the man had incredible judgment, he never talked during surgery, He was paying attention to what he was doing 100% of the time. It didn't matter if it was an easy surgery or a complex orbit. The man's attention was riveted on that field, and you didn't dare bring up anything in the middle of surgery that wasn't related to the surgery. The man was a perfectionist. His favorite saying, as a matter of fact, was, there's no such thing as the good fairy only well, used to say, "There ain't no such thing as the good fairy," <laughs> by which he meant, "Don't leave the operating room until you are one hundred percent convinced that you have done absolutely everything you can do to make that surgery turn out correctly." And he adhered to that himself, um, and he ingrained that in all of his fellows. As a as a person, he was a wonderful person. He was extremely entertaining. Between surgeries, we would talk about the surgery over lunch, and he always bought lunch for the fellows. We would talk about the surgeries, and of course, he had an unlimited supply of stories about Byron Smith. Now, Byron Smith, as you may know, was one of the original oculoplastic surgeons in the world, and the Aesopers was originally called the Byron Smith Society by his former fellows who had formed the society. And Dick Tenzel was one of the founding members of the Byron Smith Society, so he was one of the original to train under under Byron Smith. Wow. Byron Smith was another fascinating character, to say the least. I had the honor of meeting him several times. He was again quite the party animal, and Tenzel used to say that Byron Smith was a better surgeon drunk than the rest of us will ever be so sober. Which I thought was pretty fascinating. That is fascinating. (laughs) Tenzel said that Smith was the best surgeon that he'd ever seen in his life. Wow. An amazing, an amazing man, to say the least.
1: And of course, Tenzel is well known to everyone learning ophthalmology, right? We all learn about the Tenzel semicircular flap. Yes.
2: And by the way. Tenzel didn't call it a, a tensile flap. He always referred to it as the semicircle flap. And he was very particular about calling it a semicircle, not a semicircular flap. Oh. He would be berated in the operating room if you called it a semicircular flap or a tensile flap. Gosh, you didn't dare say that. But he didn't put his name on things like that. And I remember no. when I started in practice at the University of Michigan in 1983 with Bart Free. Art said, "Well, you must know how to do a tensile flat, pretty darn good." I said, "What's a tensile flat? I'd never <laughs> heard the term. Tenzel never wow. used it. Nobody around him used it, because everybody knew you didn't call it that." Wow. He said, "How could you spend a year with Dick Tenzel and not know what a tensile flat is?" I said, "I'm sorry. <laughs> you're going to have to explain to me what's a tensile flat." So you tell that's me about amazing. this. Well, oh, that's the semicircle flat. He said, "Oh." I said, yeah, we did millions of those things. I know how to do that. But I said, no, Dick wow. never called it a tensile flap. He never used his name on those things. Again, he was that type of a person.
1: And moving on from there, so you finished your fellowship with some incredible people. And then you started, like you said, you started in academics. And then take us kind of on your academic journey.
2: Well, my first job for the first two years was at the University of Michigan, which was kind of home to me. I went to college there, My all of my family still in the Detroit area, and this was going home. I really wanted to be there, and I got the honor of working with, again, another wonderful person, Bartley Free, who was really a genius in our field and unfortunately passed away way too early. Hmm. Bart was a mechanical engineer, a master's in engineering, and his approach to things was, again, very much like an engineer, very methodical very organized. He was kind of like a soft-spoken Dick Tenzel, actually, in many respects. But again, an incredible engineering mind. And when we first started working with botulinum toxin, Bart wanted to know how to measure the effects of botulinum toxin. Yes, we're paralyzing these muscles, but how much are we paralyzing them? So goes into his garage and he builds this device that's attached to some sort of a contact lens that you can put in and have the patient squeeze their eyes. And you could measure the force that was generated by the orbicularis muscle. He came up with this thing in a matter of a couple of weeks. It was incredible what he did. And we were able to measure the force of the orbicularis. We were able to tell how much paralysis uh, botulinum toxin induced. We were able to tell When it was wearing off, we could tell it was wearing off before the patients actually developed symptoms. Again, an amazing, brilliant man who had also a tremendously good sense of humor. So he was an absolute joy to work with at uh, the Kellogg Eye Center. He was the uh, original oculoplastic surgeon at the University of Michigan. I was uh, the second one to join there. And it was just a delight being with him because, again, I learned so much from Bart, too. And I, I only think you realize what you learned from people much later in your career. When you reflect on things, you look at the way you're doing some things, you look at the way you yourself are thinking, and you say, I know where that came from. I know where that idea came from. It came from so-and-so. It came from Dick Tenzel. It came from... It came from Bart Free. It, it came from Tom Auburn, people like that. And thank God those people stay with you. So I, I knew as a fellow under Dick Tenzel, we used to do a lot of neurectomies, selective differential section of the seventh nerve for blepharospasm. And because J. Lawton-Smith, was one of the premier neuro in the world at that time mm-hmm. at Bascom palmer There was a tremendous number of patients he had in his practice with blepharospasm. Of course, there was nothing to do for it uh, like we have today. So, Lawton Smith would send a lot of these patients to their Tenzel, and we would do differential section of the seventh nerve. And he would put about a three-centimeter cut in front of uh, the ear, And with a nerve stimulator, you would identify all the branches of the frontalis, of the seventh nerve, to the frontalis, to the orbicularis, the buccal branch of the seventh nerve as it was coming back up into the lower lid, and we would cut them. And this was a very picky, very time-consuming surgery. It would take about an hour per side to do, searching for these little branches with a nerve stimulator. And I could always tell when we had one because Dick Tenzel would be in a particularly foul mood that morning because he hated doing these surgeries, but nobody else would do this. Nobody else knew how to do it. So he would do it because Lawton Smith asked him to do it. And after a whole year of looking at this surgery, I said, there's really got to be a better way. Towards the end of my fellowship, we heard about botulinum toxin coming on board, a new study starting with botulinum toxin. The original use, of course, was for strabismus, business, but that was not going to be what it evolved into. So there was a trial going on for using botulinum toxin, starting up uh, for blepharospasm and hemifacial spasm. That just started when I joined Bartley Free in July of 83 at the University of Michigan. He said, okay, you're an investigator. And just to show you how times have changed, I had to fill out an entire page and a half of FDA paperwork. Now, I can't even imagine what botulinum toxin would look like, but this nowadays, but if you would measure it in feet. But it was a whole page and a half. I thought, well, that's a lot of paperwork you got to do for this thing. So, okay, we did it. And the very first week I was there, I had a patient sent to me from a mental hospital, a private mental hospital, who was being treated for blepharospasm in a psychiatric facility. I said, this is what you've got. We're going to give this to you. I injected her according to the initial protocol. She comes back a week later. Her spasm is gone. She's been discharged from the psychiatric hospital. You'll never forget that. That was such wow. an incredible moment, pivotal moment in my career when I saw this the second week now in my practice, that it looked like this woman was cured of her a very disabling disease. And over the next couple of months, the next several months, these patients started coming out of the woodwork. We had no idea where they were all coming from. And after about 12 months, we had what at that time was a massive series of these patients, about 25 patients that we had injected successfully. And Bart Free and I and our current fellow and one of the PhDs at Michigan published the very first paper on botulinum toxin, our results with it. And it was earth-shaking, groundbreaking. There was just just not enough you could say about it at the time. The amazing thing is we thought this was going to be an orphan drug because this was really a very small group of diseases in the grand scheme of things. And... We thought, okay, we've got this phenomenal treatment for this very, very select group of people, and it's going to change our practices quite a bit, but it's probably not going to be a big deal. <laughs> Boy, talk about being wrong, holy smokes.
1: <laughs> and that was that was around 1984 when you published that? 1984, that's correct, yeah. yes. And shortly after that,
2: I got an offer I couldn't refuse from Dwight Cavanaugh at Emory asking me to come down there and take a look because my old retina faculty, Travis Meredith, was now on staff at Emory. The oculoplastics person they had there for about a year had left. Sonny McCord had left. He was in private practice in Atlanta, and Emory needed somebody. And Mm -hmm. I'm sitting around in Ann Arbor one evening. My phone rings, and it's Dwight Cavanaugh on the phone. And so, Ted, this is Dwight Kavanaugh at Emory. So we've never met, but I want you to come down here and talk to us. <laughs> I said, sure, about what? He said, I want you to consider taking a job here. Said, well, that's an interesting offer. <laughs> and for those people who didn't know Dwight, he had quite a strong personality, too. He could, he could sell ice boxes to Eskimos. And he had me on a plane in a week. He had me interviewed. He had me signed, sealed, and delivered in a matter of a couple of weeks coming to Emory. So January of 85, I showed up here. And it's uh, now, what, August of 2023, I haven't left. So it's been good.
1: While we're on the topic of Botox, do you want to talk a little more about the evolution from where it came or where it was in the early 80s to where it is now? Again, it
2: was an investigational drug for that period of time. And the study continued when I came to Emory. And again, it's amazing to see how the patients, again, seemingly started coming out of the woodwork. And these people had been rummaging around for years with this disorder and had a variety of ineffective treatments, mainly because nobody recognized the disease. People did not see it for what it was. and. With Botox or botulinum toxin, we didn't call it Botox at the time, it was oculinum, we started giving talks at the academies, American Academy of Ophthalmology, American Academy of Neurology. Uh, lots of papers were published by people in neurology and ophthalmology, and the recognition of the disease increased dramatically right off the bat. And... Patients, again, just started coming in from everywhere. And I developed this huge practice early on of botulinum toxin patients. And I have to say, those were, and those still are, the happiest patients in my practice to a great degree. They come in with a very disabling problem. You give them these injections. In two or three days, they see a dramatic difference. And for the most part, they're all functional again. These are happy people, and they keep coming back for for years. I've got some patients at Emory that have been mine for decades, getting botulinum toxin every three months for close to 30 years, some of them. now It's pretty amazing. The ones I had initially have all passed away. Because I was quite young when I started. Most of these patients, as you know, are in their... 60s and 70s. So all of those right. patients have passed on, but I've still got a, a few that developed the disease early on that are still in my practice. And again, it's, it's very rewarding to see these people, after many years, still doing so very well. And somewhere along the way, after injecting all these people, especially after injecting the corrugator and forcerous muscles and maybe uh, the orbital orbicularis, everybody started noticing that the patients were doing better in terms of their, their wrinkles. And all of a sudden, the wrinkles were gone. You know, the wrinkles were better. <laughs> the patients were saying, yeah, and the nice part is I don't have those wrinkles up there between my eyebrows anymore. And that, of course, was what you know, prompted the initial studies into the cosmetic use of Botox, which is what I think most of the lay public identifies with now that most right. people, Botox is used for cosmetic rather than functional purposes. And so a lot of patients start coming in now requesting off-label use of botulinum toxin for wrinkles. So we start building this practice of uh, patients who want uh, cosmetic improvement with botulinum toxin. Of course, it eventually got approved but that led to another amazing discovery and I inject one person for wrinkles and she comes back three months later and says forget about the wrinkles my migraines are gone so oh, that's quite interesting another patient comes back a couple months later and says forget about the wrinkles I no longer care about that my migraines are gone you go, "Hmm, that's interesting I've heard that before Third, fourth patient comes back and they're all saying, my gosh, my headaches are so much better since you've injected me. And it wore off, they're back, can you inject me again? And you think they can't all be making this up. They're not all talking to each other. They're not all making up the same story. There's really got to be something to this. And at that time, I was working pretty closely with Allergan, which just taken over the production of botulinum toxin, trade name that is Botox. And I called up the vice president, one of the vice presidents that I knew quite well, and I said, I'm hearing some really interesting things from a lot of my cosmetic patients that I'm injecting off-label. And he said, you know, you're not the first person to bring that to our attention within the last couple of months, actually. He said, do you mind if we talk to these patients? I said, well, I'll, I'll ask them. I'm sure they'd be willing to talk to you. So I lined up three of these patients that were cosmetic that are now coming because their headaches are better. The Vice President flies out from Irvine, California with two of his PhD researchers and they spend the morning interviewing these people in my office. And I get a call from him a couple of months later and says that you know, you were part of the original investigation for botulinum toxin, for blepharospasm, hemifacial spasm. We would like to start a study, a pilot study, for treating migraine with botulinum toxin. We'd love for you to be a part of this study. And I thought about that for about two nanoseconds. I said, I'm going to actually go out and start recruiting patients into my office who are complaining of headaches. He said, yep, that's exactly what you're going to do. He said, here's a study I'm going to pass on. Thank you very much. I appreciate your interest. But I am not <laughs> recruiting headache patients in my office, for God's sakes. Right. <laughs> so, so I passed on that study, to say the least. But as everybody knows, uh, actually the trial went on to become very, uh, very, very effective for migraine. Of course, it's now FDA approved, and. I got tipped off that I should buy stock in Allergan. I never did. And of course, six months after they announced it, the stock tripled. But then again, I've never made a good investment in the stock market. (laughs) (laughs) That's just a lot of money I didn't make again. So, so, and to this day, I've I've got a handful of patients I treat for migraine, but I, I certainly don't go out Recruiting those patients, not not in my practice. I'm glad the neurologists want to do that. Thank goodness.
1: Now, talking about innovative things, Botox was obviously one of them, or botulinum toxin. And and you continued to use it for other things too. You started using it for epiphora as well at some point.
2: Yes, there have been a couple of anecdotal case reports about injecting the orbital lobe and the palpebral lobe. Just you know, one single case reports, maybe one or two patients scattered in the world literature. It made perfect sense because botulinum toxin denervates presynaptic nerve terminals of cholinergic nerves. The lacrimal gland is innervated by cholinergic nerves. So it was also being looked at for hypersalivation by injecting the parotid gland, injecting the armpits for hyperhidrosis. So why not inject the lacrimal gland? It made perfect sense. So having a large number of patients with epiphora, I decided to just offer this to some patients as an option, as an off-label use of the medication, just injecting five units of botulinum toxin into the palpebral of the lacrimal gland. And, gee, these patients did beautifully. A lot of them started coming back and saying, My tearing is a whole lot better. Forget about that DCR surgery that you were going to do on me. If I can just do this a couple times a year, I don't have to go to the operating room. And in a matter of probably a year, a year and a half, I accumulated about 40 patients that I had injected uh, with about an 80% uh, very positive uh, success rate. And I still have a lot of these patients in my practice. I find the main use is for a patient that can't have a DCR for some reason. Maybe they're too sick to go to the operating room. We can't get them off. uh, They're blood thinners. Uh, They're just fragile, very elderly. And this has been a wonderful uh, secondary treatment for a lot of these patients uh, or failed DCR that don't want to have more surgery. So it's a nice part of the practice. Again, for many years, I've got a number of these patients that just keep coming back for botulinum toxin to the lacrimal gland, and they're very wow. pleased with it. It, it works quite
1: nicely. And just for timeline's sake, I, mean, I think from from what I recall, it was around, I think, 2008, you presented, I think, a handful of patients at, at an ASOPERS meeting uh, on initial results of injecting botulinum toxin for Epifra.
2: Yes, that, that was the case. And that's still the largest case series in the world that I have. No one's somehow, no one's been able to come up with those numbers for some strange reason. I continue to review a lot of papers on the subject for the various journals that I review for. And I'm pretty sure, I, you know, at least in terms of publication, I've, I've probably, I last I looked, I've injected about, I think, uh, 100 to 110 patients. Uh, and a lot of these are still coming back at routine intervals right. with botulinum toxin for epifera. That's a pretty large number. Uh, wow. I look back at my just my numbers of botulinum toxin, and I am somewhere in the fifteen thousand patient encounters for botulinum toxin over my career. Oh. Boy, that's a lot of that's a lot of poison. I'm telling you. <laughs> a, lot it's of tox. a lot of toxins. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but let's switch gears and talk. So we talked a lot about Botox, but do you want to switch to the polyethylene implants, for example? The, the
2: porous polyethylene. That's I've had a love affair with that since I came to Emory. When I started at Emory in January of '85, it was a little startup company in Atlanta that was just getting going at that time. Um. Uh, Porex, Porex Surgical, and they had developed porous polyethylene implants, and this was in response to the hydroxyapatite implants, which were developed by Art Perry, who, as you may know, is also a former Emory resident, Art out in San Francisco, and Art was an Emory resident, a little bit older than me, and... The porous polyethylene looked to have uh, several advantages over the the coral implants, the hydroxyapatite implants. So this startup company, Corex, sent one of their representatives, one of their vice presidents over to me, Mr. Greg Swords, and I use that name because just about everybody in my field knows who Greg Swords is in the oculoplastics field because uh, he and this company again exploded in terms of the products and their uses and greg swords explained to me oh, we've got this implant we'd like to try it and he said where can we put it i said well you know we've got the Yerkes regional primate center just down the street a lot of my partners are doing research down there and i'll bet you any money one of these animals is going to have to have an enucleation for study for one reason or another and sure enough One of my partners at the time, Scott Lambert, who was doing a lot of amblyopia research, had a monkey that needed an enucleation. He actually asked me to do it, and I said, is there any problem with this putting this implant in this monkey at the same time? No one could find a reason why we couldn't put this implant in this monkey. So one afternoon, we went over to Yerkes. We enucleated one eye on this monkey, and we put the first porous polyethylene implant into this monkey. The monkey did beautifully, you know, went on to get, you know, accolades from all of his fellow monkeys about how good he looked after he had the implant done. And was, I I understand was very happy in his monkey world. And so this was the very first surgery with a porous polyethylene implant. And I put One of the first ones, and there were several people around the country that started working with the company. I never became a formal advisor because I was also using a lot of hydroxyapatite implants and I just didn't feel that I was going to like the role of a hired gun. That did involve a lot of travel very often. I had young children at the time. I didn't want to leave at a moment's notice because the company needed a speaker somewhere. So I never took a dime from the company. But I developed a long-term love affair with the people at Porex who made MedPore and all the other products, simply because it was fun and it was academically stimulating. Greg Swords is still a close personal friend and colleague. He's been retired, but I still bounce ideas off him every so often because he's such an incredible intelligence and such an incredible mind. And Greg would get an idea, and he'd walk into my office at Emory and say, hey, we got this product. What do you think we can do with it? Is there something we can do with this? And for many, many years, we just had this wonderful back-and-forth relationship uh, with the company. Now, of course, the company got bought up by Stryker, and everybody in the company went their separate ways. So Greg Soares went with Stryker. Several of the other people formed their own companies. Uh, There are three companies that came out of the original MedPor. And I continue to work with them. Peripherus is one of the companies that's headed by Aaron Noble. Aaron Noble was also early on at the Corex company. And he was also one of the science minds over there. He founded his own company uh, making the product. And I'm still working with them today. Uh, looking at their products, evaluating their products. Again, not as a hired gun, but just as as a good friend. And it's been a wonderful relationship with all of these companies. And uh, we've been on the cutting edge with a lot of products like uh, the the MedPore coated Jones tube. Uh, This was a great idea. And I remember Greg Swords coming to me thinking, what if we coated Jones tube with this stuff? Will it stay in better? So I hear you guys have all kinds of problems with these Jones tubes. They're always falling out. I said, yeah, nobody's, nobody's come up with a good way to, to keep those things anchored. I said, that's, that's a great idea, putting some 4x around it. Let's see what happens. So we coated a bunch of these Jones tubes with MedPore. And this was back in the day when you didn't need an IRB to do anything. You just did it. The product looked safe. You know, they had government approval. You just did it. You put it in. So I put in the first four patients, some at Emory, some at Grady. Every single patient did wonderfully. There was not a problem. And it was a great product for many years. Unfortunately, when Stryker bought the Porex company, they discontinued the MedPore quoted Jones because, again, it's kind of an orphan product, but there are. Uh, The peripherals company and I was actually thinking of trying to come back with it. I'd love to see it back because Jones tubes are
1: still a big problem. They don't stay in place. Now, I know you mentioned some of your mentors already. Are there any other mentors you'd you'd like to mention?
2: Well, I always feel an obligation to Dr. George Waring. And I believe George had passed away prior to you starting your residency, I -hmm. think. George was the second cornea faculty at Emory after Lou Wilson. George Waring, of course, was probably the premier man in the world in refractive surgery for many years up until, again, his untimely death. He was an incredible person to be down the hallway from. He didn't want to have to work with George because he had a a almost schizophrenic style in the clinic, and it would drive all of his technicians, all of his residents, all of his fellows, absolutely crazy because he was doing 10 things at once. It, you know, he'd be seeing a million patients. He'd run to his office for 20 minutes, take a phone call from somewhere around the world. Um, then he'd come back and see more patients. Then he'd run down and have a meeting with somebody else, then come back to the office. And it was like trying to follow a pinball around when you were working with George. Fortunately, I just got to work next door to George. So... <laughs> It was not stressful for me, but his fellows, his secretaries, the residents, the techs, everybody was always frantic, but it was almost comical to watch because nobody had a better rapport with the patients. And even though the patients would wait hours to see him, every single patient loved George Waring. He had such an incredible persona about him. And he was just an amazing man. With a, a wealth of experience, and we were both we would both be working late at night on Wednesdays for various reasons. And George would get tired. He was writing this massive textbook on refractive surgery. He'd get tired. He'd come out for a break. He'd sit down in my office. We would just we would just uh, shoot the bowl for an, an hour or so. And he became just a great personal mentor to me with uh, in my my personal life in my academic life, um, just an amazing, wonderful man to have around as a friend. And again, we truly mourn his passing because he contributed so much to the field of refractive surgery and did it with so much flair, too. He was always a great style about the man that, that you, you couldn't dislike the man. It was impossible to dislike him because he right. uh, could warm up anybody. Lou Wilson, who was the first cornea specialist at Emory, who, again, an amazing man in his own regard, too, used to say that the best thing about being at Emory is that you can go anywhere in the world, tell them you're from Emory, and they'll say, oh, we know George Waring. He was just here giving a talk. So you were instantly (laughs) welcomed just about any ophthalmology program in the world because George had just been there giving a talk on refractive surgery. And it
1: was true. And, and we actually had a couple of weeks ago, I had Robert Maloney on, who was uh, one of the Heed fellows at Emory and worked very closely with, with George Waring back in, I believe it was 91, 1991. So that was, it was kind of, it's, it's special to hear so many different people bring up, you know, George Waring, especially being an, an Emory alum myself and, and to hear just, just how highly everyone um, regards him.
2: He was an amazing innovator. He was always looking for a better way to do things. So again, just, just an inspiration to, to be around, no question about it.
1: And you mentioned Tom Auberg earlier as well uh, as one of your mentors. But Yeah, I had the privilege of training
2: under him as a resident when he was head of the, the retina section in Milwaukee and then coming to Emory on faculty. And that was shortly after... Dwight Kavanaugh left the position, and we needed a a new chairman. And lo and behold, it turned out to be Tom Aubert. We thought for sure that he was going to go to Baskin-Palmer. He was offered chairmanship at the University of Illinois. He was offered Mass Year. He refused all three of those positions and uh, came to Emory. And this was like a dream come true to work for the man because there was— in in terms of academics, uh, there was no one that had a greater wealth of knowledge about vitriol retinal disease than Tom Aubrey. The man was truly encyclopedic. He had seen everything, he remembered everything he ever saw, he knew how to teach it, and he understood it. Again, just a brilliant man, but it went beyond that. He was a compassionate person, he was a role model to everybody. He was, he was incredibly humble. He never tooted his own horn, ever. Um, everybody else got the credit, even if Tom did it. It was always for somebody else. He was kind. Patients loved him. Very soft-spoken. I never heard the man raise his voice all the years that I ever knew him. He didn't have to. He talked. People listened. Uh, the man was a role model. He trained unbelievable numbers of fellows, both in Milwaukee and in Amory. And having him as a chairman was a dream come true. We, uh, those of us who were around referred to it as our Camelot when Tom was the chairman. <laughs> well, he was a great man to have, and he's still, I understand, doing quite well. Even though he retired, he apparently was seeing some patients on and off what uh, I think has totally retired at this point And I think is still doing quite well. And anybody who met the man loved the man. You Again, you could not dislike this man.
1: We've talked a lot about the past. We've talked about some of the the amazing things you've done. In looking back of all the things you've done and all the different uh, ways you've been involved in helping move forward the field of oculoplastics, is there one thing in particular that stands out that you're you're the most proud of?
2: Well, I would probably have to say it's the the use of botulinum toxin. There's there's no question about it. It has been my, my great joy in my professional career. It has allowed me to help more patients than I can count, continues to allow me to help more patients than I can count. And I actually believe that we're going to continue to see an incredible evolution in the uses of the toxins for treating various things. I don't think we're anywhere near done with them yet. I love doing everything in oculoplastics, but I have to admit, I just really love the toxins the best. They're just the greatest part of my practice.
1: Any insight into what may be next for those toxins? That's a darn good
2: question. That's a darn good question. (laughs) I think we're going to We've seen a lot of use for microtoxins in the skin, doing things that we didn't think possible, treating a lot of other skin conditions. And I think the big advance is going to be when we get a longer-lasting toxin that is just about ready to come out to the market. The first product of its kind is just about ready to come out to the market. One that's probably going to last twice as long, which will give us an ability to Treat patients for longer periods of time. I think that's going to be a big step forward in the toxin world.
1: Are there other things that you're excited about on the horizon?
2: Well, I think that we are developing much better treatments for orbital vascular tumors, arterial venous malformations, um, varices of the orbit. And these were lesions that were solely in the domain of the orbital surgeon. But with the advent of better equipment in the neurointerventional world, we have seen a paradigm shift on how to treat these disorders. And there are more and more people being trained around the country and around the world who can now embolize sclerose these orbital vascular lesions with a much greater magnitude of success and safety than we can do surgically. and i think we're going to see continued improvements as more and more people learn how to do these techniques in the treatment of orbital vascular lesions i think uh, again that field is is really exploding right now too and this has made my life a whole lot simpler because these are very scary things to operate on as you can imagine um, lots of blood loss, lots of potential for blindness uh, in the orbit with surgical treatment of these. Not that surgical treatment has gone away, but it's allowing us to get to areas and get to things that we couldn't before. That, in combined with our ENT colleagues, and you know, don't forget, we were once part of ENT and they were part of us, and we work a lot with ENT. And, We've got now a lot of sinus surgeons helping us with very complex orbital cases. And more and more of the ENT doctors who are practiced in sinus surgery, endoscopic sinus surgery, are learning how to help us get to some of these really tough orbital lesions that we had to attack ourselves. And I think, again, in the next several years, we're going to see a lot of improvement in treating a lot of these orbital tumors and orbital vascular lesions that have been such a problem for so many years.
1: And I I can actually recall there was a large vascular tumor that I helped you remove back in residency. And I remember taking, a speaking of blood loss, I mean, I I don't know that in an ophthalmology surgery I've ever seen half a liter in each uh, container. And I remember taking a picture and and sending it to some of my friends in general surgery and it was like, hey, what surgery do you think I just did? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's uh, it. really is amazing. Obviously, that patient did did phenomenal. But I mean, that is a big advance, right? I mean, that's that's a lot. Those yes. are those are challenging yes. surgeries. Those are really yes. challenging surgeries. So I think if, if I think that's a great
2: point. Less in, less interventional procedures for treating these very difficult lesions. We're going to be a lot better off, and so will the patients.
1: Well, are there any fun stories or any other stories or or ins- anything else you want to talk about? Things that we can share publicly, you mean? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know. There, there's a lot, and, and what what I will say is, you know, I'm 71 years old. I, I keep I keep wondering, should I retire? Then I think, what what in the world would I do if I retired? Because. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I am one of those people that has no outside interest. Thank God I've at least got grandchildren now who live here in Atlanta. (laughs) So I've got something else that I can look forward to with my time other than traveling with my my girlfriend. But you can't travel 100% of the time. She and I love to travel. And uh, if we retire, we'll certainly do a whole lot more of that. But um, um, even though it gets tiring, it it sometimes wears on me, and I'll admit some of the Bureaucratic nonsense uh, becomes less tolerable as you get older. But when one patient comes to you and says, "Thank you so much, I'm so much better," it makes your day. And I know you get that feeling when you when you do a cataract or a refractive surgery, and these patients are so happy and they're so grateful to you. And there's nothing that matches that feeling. It's there's no amount of money will make up for for the wonderful, wonderful feeling you get when you talk to these, these patients. It's worth all the money in the world. And this is the reason I, I continue to go.
1: Grady holds a special place in my heart being it's, it's where I trained. How have you seen Grady evolve over the years? I'll
2: tell you. When I go to Grady, I go to Grady once a month now. And to me, I say, well, this is one of my vacation days. Not because I'm not working there, it's because I'm having so much fun when I go down to Grady. It's, it's a joy. As you know, it's a completely different population. When I started working at Grady, it was mainly, I would say it was probably 75% African-American, and 25 20% Caucasian, and 5% of everything else. That as the United States population has changed, as the Atlanta population has changed, the Population at Grady has changed. We have every language in the world being spoken down at Grady right now. It is a cultural potpourri. So we're seeing things down there now that you wouldn't have seen before that, that are really third world medicine to a great degree. I'm sure you saw that too. Like, where did this problem come from, for God's sakes? It's unbelievable. Um, you know, orbital tuberculosis, my goodness. all. Trachoma. You know, we're, we're seeing these things in an inner-city practice. This is unbelievable. And some of the most memorable patients I've had, some of the most enjoyable patients I've had, have been at Grady, without a doubt. And I, I, I love going down there. It's a vacation day for me. It's fun. It can be a learning experience for me. And I, I swear that every single time I go to Grady, I see something that wasn't in a textbook anywhere. It's, again, it's a joy.
1: You know, I I think much of what I've learned and what I've been able to do, I mean, I I credit so much to what I saw and what I learned at Grady. It holds a special place in my heart, too.
2: And it's giving back. And it's giving back. Absolutely.
1: That's right. Well, Ted, any Lord, other?
2: I think that is enough pontification for one evening. Thank you so
1: much, Gordon. <laughs> this was an absolute delight. Well, thank you, Ted. Seriously, it's, it's been an honor to chat with you tonight and, and to reminisce about your history and involvement in so much. So thank you so much for joining. You take care, my friend. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular Alcon, who is a founding-level sponsor of the Season 1 of the history of eye care.
0: And that concludes another episode of the history of eye care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.